It has been a real blessing and joy to be here, particularly uh, not only because of your fellowship but also your, and your kindness to me, but also the theme. So it's a, high way to, a good way to motivate me to come preach, say, come preach on the sovereignty of God. But if you weren't here last night, I do want to give you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, for, the, I've, for the last 16 years, I've had the privilege of being the senior minister there. And I, when I come down to, when I go to Charleston and I preach there, I, I have a stock phrase I give, which is that, you know, we in the upcountry, we bow to the cultural supremacy of y'all in the low country, but not as humbly as we used to. <laughs> so I'm blessed to be in wonderful Greenville and in a wonderful godly church. So uh, if you're in the upcountry on a Lord's Day, and I'm sure you will be, right? Uh, come worship with us, and uh, we'll, we come here every summer, so we'll, we'll, you'll see our family here sometime for worship. Well, let me ask you to open your Bibles to the first chapter of Ephesians. I'm going to preach one of the classic verses on God's sovereignty and salvation, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. This is God's word, and it says, Even as he chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Wonderful things in your law. And we thank you for this truth that we would not have imagined, much less have invented ourselves. And yet you tell us of your sovereignty, and particularly how you chose us in your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, give us grace as we mine from that, this treasure house this wonderful storehouse of gospel truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. During the years I was ministering in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, there were some very large construction projects, some of the current skyscrapers, ugly ones, I have to say, too. Uh, but there were really big buildings that went in. And one of them was taking place right near the, the train station. That I, Pretty much every day I took the train in, and I would get out of the train station, and for a couple of years I saw the progress of this skyscraper they were putting in. And I noticed how much work goes on beneath the ground, years of work for a skyscraper, before anything above the ground can be seen, particularly with really tall buildings. The foundation must, must have a great deal of attention and effort. If you want a building to stand fast, particularly one that reaches high into the sky, you have to dig deep and plant a firm foundation. Well, the Apostle Paul shows a similar concern in Ephesians 1 as he's beginning to construct in this wonderful epistle. He's going to construct the edifice of Christian salvation, and he intends for us to see our salvation as a work of the ages that is infinitely high, reaching up forever. And this is where Paul is headed as he begins Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, is a hymn of praise to the Lord. The first section of Ephesians, all one sentence. God is leading to an, et an eternity future. And so it's an eternity past that God sets the groundwork of our security. And Paul says this, that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Well, Ephesians 1.4 provides one of the clearest statements of what is known as the doctrine of election sometimes called predestination, but here the particular word is electos, which means to choose. We hold elections and we choose political leaders usually. 
And this verse and its doctrine teach that all the blessings that we enjoy as Christians are grounded in the sovereign choosing of God, which took place in eternity past, long before not only we were born, but anyone was born. And so here's the foundation, this eternal past foundation on which the salvation of every believer rests. God's own free and gracious choice of us. And it is the strongest, firmest foundation possible. God's own eternal purpose, his unchanging eternal purpose. And it's upon that that Paul wants us to ground our hope of eternal life. Now Paul tells us that God chose us in him that is in Christ. And that means that when God decided our salvation, he did so through Christ's saving work for us. And and this will help us to understand some of these little statements that are made in the New Testament. Peter says that Christ is the lamb without blemish or defect foreknown before the foundation of the world. Well, we know that Jesus is the second person of the eternal Godhead, so he foreexisted, was foreknown. But he says, no, it was as the lamb that he was foreknown. That the atoning work of Christ is grounded in the eternal decree of, of the Godhead. And, and our election is bound up in that. Revelation 13.8 calls Christ the Lamb slain from the creation of the world. And, and these descriptions show that in eternity past, God's will included both sin and sinners. So there's no conflict between the doctrine of election and salvation through faith in Christ. God elected that Christ would die for the sins of a people whom the Father gave to the Son in eternity past. The elect were ordained to have faith in Christ and through faith in Christ to be saved. Now the Bible teaches, therefore, that there was a covenant an agreement in eternity past before creation between God the Father and God the Son. God the Spirit was also involved, but we we know mainly about the agreement between the Father and the Son. And and you'll get little instances of this. You think in Jesus' high priestly prayer. By the way, John 17, such a great chapter. Imagine if we could have been there or gotten a record of the Messiah praying the priestly prayer right before he makes the priestly sacrifice. But we do. That's John 17. And he begins by saying, verse 4, Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so Christ, the incarnation, had a mission. Christ came into the world with a work to do for the Father. When did he receive that work? He received it. In eternity past, theologians call this the covenant of redemption. God the Father laid a charge on God the Son, which our Savior accepted, that he would take up our cause and die for our sins, and in return the Father promised him a people, the elect, whom he would redeem, those chosen in eternity past, to be his people and bride. We are chosen in Christ through Christ, in union with him, and through his redemptive work for us. Now the doctrine of election therefore says that the cause for our individual salvation is that God chose us in Christ in eternity past. Why is someone a Christian? Well, the answer is because he or she believed the gospel, and that is the correct answer. 
But then we go on and we ask, but why did that person believe whereas someone else did not believe? And sadly, and so mistakenly, usually we'll think there's something in them that's better. Something a little more spiritual, something a little more receptive, a slight tilt in the Godward direction, and that's why that person believed when the person sitting next to them did not believe, and the Bible utterly refutes that. That's why the Reformed doctrine is called unconditional election. We, are, we were chosen apart from any condition in us. There was nothing commendable in us. There was absolutely nothing in me that, that merited or, or accounted for God choosing me in eternity past. It is by grace alone. And the reason I believed and therefore was saved is because in eternity past, the sovereign God determined, he predestined my eternal salvation and the way it would come about, and he chose me. It's not because of something in us. It's because of God's sovereign choice. That's what Paul's saying, his eternal election of individuals to be his own people through faith in Jesus. Now, this is good news to all who believe. Because here is the foundation of your salvation, not something in you. Isn't that great to hear? You and me who are so weak, we're so changing, we're so mixed in our affections, we're so inconstant in our faith. No, no, there's no, my eternal destiny does not rest on anything in me that has to bear that weight, nothing good. No, it's the foundation of God's own sovereign choosing in eternity past. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Well, having stated the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, the doctrine of election in verse 4, I want to emphasize a few things from this. And the first is this, that the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election or predestination is the Bible's teaching and not man's. Why do we believe this? People say to me, well, you devised this. It would never, I would never have had the guts to devise it. It would never have crossed my mind in a million years to come up with this doctrine. And, and people think that, well, the doctrine of election is a human invention, and they, they point to John Calvin because his name has been given to a theological position that is known for this doctrine, namely Calvinism. And yet how wrong this is to attribute these doctrines to any man. For one thing, there's a great theological lineage that goes way before Calvin and the 16th century Reformation. If, uh, and one of my, I actually had a, one of my seminary classes was an independent study with Sinclair Ferguson as my professor on Augustine's anti-Pelagian writings. And I read all of an, his anti-Pelagian writings and I thought, what a Calvinist he is. I mean, he, he's clearly under Calvin's influence. You can almost hear the pattern of words. But of course, since he was 1,100 years before Calvin, it's not he who's under Calvin's influence, it's Calvin who's under his influence, not Calvin. It was long before then. All through church history, a great many teachers have not only embraced, but insisted on this doctrine. There have been many centuries in church history where this was the overwhelmingly dominant view as it should be. But what really matters is not what theologians believed, although it's helpful to realize church history strong endorsement. We need to emphasize that today because the last couple of centuries have not been good in that regard. And many Bible, many of our dear Bible-believing friends who deny the sovereignty of God and salvation, they just assume it's some historical aberration. Actually, Arminianism is the historical aberration. But what matters is what the Bible teaches. 
As Christians, we are bound and obliged before God to accept all that is plainly taught in God's holy word. And if we will inspect the scriptures, we will find that scripture redundantly and clearly and forcefully sets forth the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election. So many people, when they come to, when they're born again again, and they come to realize the sovereignty of God, they, they, they go, it's just all through the Bible. And it is. And in so many cases, they grew up in churches where Ephesians 1 just was never preached. It's too mysterious. It's too difficult. No, it's the word of God. And once the lights are on, you see it everywhere indeed. Well, Ephesians 1.4 does make the point. Paul's meaning, even if we like, don't like it, it is an unavoidable meaning. Salvation begins with God choosing believers in Christ before creation. In Romans 9, verse 10, Paul uses a different example. He uses the example of Jacob and Esau to show that before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, there's no merit on their part. God chose the one and despised the other. On what principle? Romans 9, 11 says, because of God's purpose of election. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Because he chose him as his sovereign will for no other reason than that. Uh, one of my favorite examples is found in Luke's teaching in Acts chapter 13, 48. He, he's recounting Paul's teaching in Pisidian Antioch. And, and very much in passing, he's not talking about the doctrines of grace. He's not talking about the sovereignty of God. He's just telling about Paul preaching and all these people believing. And he just incidentally says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Those who'd been appointed to eternal life. Why did they believe? Because Paul preached, and, but there were other people he preached to, but these were appointed to eternal life. When were they appointed? In eternity past. Peter taught election. He addressed his first epistle to those who are elect. In his second letter, he urged us to make your calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1.10. That's not saying make yourself elect. He says gain confident grounds that you are one of the elect. What about Jesus? Did Jesus teach the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election? Yes, he did. In John 15, 16, he made a plain statement saying, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And that's what, you read the gospel account, that's what happened. That's, that's, we need to remember that. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And we, that's, that was the case with Peter and John and James. Jesus sovereignly picked them out when he might have chosen others. One of my, I think my favorite of all the, uh, the conversions and the calling of the apostles is Matthew. That's why I have a son named Matthew. Matthew's the tax collector in Capernaum. And he's, he, so he, he's either got his tax booth, which is also mafia chief. So he's running his extortion operation either from the docks in Capernaum or on the way into town. Either way, he's seen it all. He's seen the miracles. He's seen Jesus and the disciples coming back. He can care less. He wants, to not, he wants to exploit them for money. And then just so brief, Jesus walks to him and says, come, follow me. And, and Levi, the tax collector, came and followed him. Jesus chose him. And with that choosing went forth the power of the Holy Spirit and the effectual call. And he was saved by sovereign grace because Christ chose him. That's what we see in the case of all of the disciples. Uh, Jesus spoke of the eternal security that goes with, uh, with divine election. John 6, 37 to 39, 
all that the Father gives me. And, and by, by, once you realize this, you, you say, he says it all the time in John's Gospel. There's people who are saved. Who are they? They are people given by the Father to the Son. And that was actually in eternity past. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We were talking about Christianity not being determinism. Come to, come to Jesus and be saved. And, and it's true. And those whom the Father gave to him will come to him. And, and they, he will not cast them out. This is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But I will raise it up on the last day. There's our assurance. Christ's affirmation that he will fulfill the will of the Father by saving every last one of his sheep. And of course later in the chapter... Chapter, chapter 10. By the way, John 6. Dr. Boyce preached a sermon on John, I think it's John 6, 36 to 40, that great passage. And the title of the sermon was Christ the Calvinist. And he took so much abuse over that. But he said, well, I'm not saying Christ is a follower of Calvinism, but every one of the doctrines of grace is taught powerfully in Jesus' bread of life discourse. I will say the biblical writer, preacher, who far and away most emphasizes God's sovereignty in salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does not compare to Jesus in his intensity of it. And he, he in, in the high priestly prayer, he expressly directs his atoning work not to the world at, long, at large, not to just all people indiscriminately. No, he is dying for his own people. I am not praying for the world, he says, but for those whom you have given to me. It's the doctrine of limited atonement, which says that Jesus did not die equally for all persons in all the world. He made an atonement for the elect. I, I love that truth. But limited atonement, which is the, the black horse of the five, black sheep of the five. If you're a four-point Calvinist, because you don't like limited atonement, mainly because it sounds bad. It's actually great. What it means is that Jesus did not die for me because I believed in him, but that I believed in him because Jesus died for me. Literally. If you, I don't mean to be irreverent. If you were to grab Jesus and interview him before going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and you said, could you give us a list? And he does. It's the book of life in heaven. Uh, the name's written from the foundation of the world. Uh, who are you dying for? Richard D. Phillips would have been on that list. And if you said, Jesus, I mean, I wasn't born till. 1,930 years later. If you said, what about Rick Phillips, born in Fort Monroe? He'd go, I'm dying for him. And it's because God chose me in eternity past that Christ died for my sins. And that is why the Holy Spirit made the general call, the preaching of the gospel, effectual in my case. And when the gospel was preached, I believed not so that Jesus would die for me, but because he did die for me personally. And by the way, that, that, to me, that just changes our whole devotion. I live for him because he died for me. Jesus did not die for a principle. He did, but he didn't die for a cause. He did, but he died for me, personally. And so I live, Christianity, yes, it's a principle. Yes, it's a cause. I live for him who died for me. I am not praying for the world, he says, but for those whom you've given me. We believe the doctrine of the election because of the overwhelming teaching of Scripture. This is what I'm saying. 
And God's sovereignty and salvation is not restricted to the New Testament. I mentioned last night, Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. God says, I am God. There is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. I say my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. What a great statement of sovereignty. In the Exodus, Moses explained God's election of Israel with the same emphasis that Paul gives on God's free and sovereign choice. Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. 100% of the explanation is in God. In his heart, he chose me when there is nothing to commend myself. He loves me because he loved me. I've reflected often on the fact that I am a believer proves that God loves me. And it is vitally important that we live day to day as people who believe, as John said in 1 John, that we know and rely on the love that God has for, for me. Do you, do you really believe God loves you? The fact that you believe certifies that he has loved you forever. And he loves you now. And so if you're wrestling with election and predestination and the sovereignty of God, the question, the only real question should be, is it what the Bible teaches? It's the only question that matters. Is it taught by the Bible? The question is not yet whether you understand it. Certainly it's not whether you like it. At least initially the answer is you will not like it. Because if you're like me, you were raised a humanist. And this ain't humanism. In fact, it's a hammer blow to the china plate of your humanism. And God, I remember being aware of this. I was a brand new Christian and I realized that to believe the Bible, I had to surrender my, the entire humanistic worldview which I've been raised my entire life. And I had to just lay it before the Lord and say, speak Lord, your servant is listening. And that is the basis why we believe in the sovereignty of God. Does God teach it in scripture? Because if he does, and, and I do think just that brief survey I gave shows that the Bible does teach this, then your obedience to him requires that you receive these doctrines. And through the obedience of your mind, God will lead you into understanding and rejoicing for what at first can be so hard to accept. All reformed ministers, and I, I, I never resent this at all. It's a joy to talk to people. They're really struggling with the sovereignty of God. And they have questions, and, may, and maybe you do. That's why I'm saying this tonight. Um, we, the first question is, do we, does the Bible teach it? And often they'll go, yes, it does. But I don't like it. Okay, that's what, that's what we need to explore. That's what we need to explore. The obedience of our wills and of our minds, and he will change the affections of our hearts. He will enlighten our minds. You know, people ask me, what does it mean to be reformed in matters of theology? And, and usually they say, well, the answer is reformed. To be reformed means that you believe in predestination, and that is not true. To be reformed, you will believe in predestination, but that's not what defines it. Well, here's what I have to say. To be reformed means this, that I believe not what I wish was true, not what I think ought to be true, but I believe what the Bible declares to me is true. That's what reform means, reformed according to the word of God. 
So I am not reformed. I didn't become reformed when I believed in election. It's because I believe that the word of God is true and authoritative and I must surrender my mind and my heart and my will. That's, why I, that's when I became reformed. And inevitably, because the Bible teaches it, I believed in election. Now, some may wonder then what difference the doctrine of election makes in our real lives. And I want to point out some of the ways it shapes our thinking and living, beginning with this. The sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election promotes humility and not pride. The doctrine of election promotes humility and not pride. And people go, the, the exact opposite is true. Anybody who's argued Calvinism has been accused of arrogance. And how can you be so prideful? But I go, look, I believe that I am chosen by God, not because there's something commendable about me. That's what they think we mean. There must be something special about you. No, we've renounced that. The Bible's teaching does not say God chose you because you're so special. No, there's nothing special about you other than the only thing I brought into this marriage was my sin and unfaithfulness and wickedness and depravity. Everything he saw in me was demerit. He chose me unconditionally as the purpose of his will, and that humbles me. Election ascribes salvation not to any merit in the Christian but rather fully embraces the biblical teaching of total depravity. It says that unless salvation is holy of God, then so total was my sinful inability, so great is my guilt and wickedness, so, so fervent was my opposition to the things of God that I could never have been saved unless the Almighty God chose me and exerted his sovereign might and saved me. Arthur Pink says, the truth of God's sovereignty removes every ground for human boasting and instills the spirit of humility in its place. It declares that salvation is of the Lord, and this is the most humbling thing to the heart of man. Man wants to contribute something to the price of his redemption, to do that which will afford some ground for self-boasting and self-satisfaction. And I will say that, I say this without malice, but it is in fact Arminianism that promotes pride because it is something that you did that was better than what somebody else did. And you may go, well, God, God deserves the credit, but I get the credit for this. Then the one, you may glorify God, but you will never glorify God alone because you're holding to something in you. By the way, you'll never have assurance. I'm going to get to that because you're relying on that. You see, how can we boast when we realize that our salvation is in spite of utter unworthiness and only because of God's sovereign and amazing grace. And this is our need as, as people, as creatures, as Christians, to have our pride and our self-reliance laid low. And it is precisely the doctrine of sovereign election that humbles the believer's heart. We are chosen. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to be chosen. It's great to be chosen. But we are chosen not because of anything in us that was commendable to God but by sheer mercy and grace. He saved us, Titus 3.5 says, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He might have said his sovereign mercy. Now the second way we believe in the sovereignty of God and in predestination and election because the Bible overwhelmingly teaches it. It doesn't promote pride, it promotes humility. But the second thing it does in us is it promotes holiness and not license. 
The doctrine of election promotes holiness and not license. And again, people go, that's totally counterintuitive. If I had a dollar every time I've been told this. Uh, you know, if I believe that God's sovereign over anything, well, I might as well just sin to the full. And of course, my answer is that is the way everyone thinks except those who've been chosen by God and are born again by the Holy Spirit. It's Paul at the end of Romans 5. He talks about where sin increased, grace abounded. And in Ephesians 6, 2, what then shall we sin all the more? That's logical because clearly Paul's doctrine of election had been accused of promoting license and not holiness. And he says, Meganoito, may it never be. How can we who are dead to sin and alive to God continue to walk in that way? The Bible says that election promotes holiness and not license. Look at verse 4, Ephesians 1, 4 again. He chose us in Christ that we may be holy and blameless before him. And this allows me to make the categorical statement that if you are not bearing evidence of holiness, if you do not even desire to be holy, and that is evidence of holiness, if you, and I've had people say this to me, not many, but I've had a couple people say, I've walked with the Lord for 20 years and my life hasn't changed at all. I'm not, I haven't given up any sins, I haven't repented, I feel nothing towards the Lord, and my response to the person is, you need to believe in order to be saved because you are not a Christian. That is not a biblical description of someone who's born again. And the Bible says we were chosen especially to the aim that we would be holy and blameless before him. When God elected sinners, he elected them to holiness. Holiness is the particular mark of the elect. We're not chosen because we're holy. But if you want to say, what what does an elect person look like, particularly if they've matured in faith? Holiness is the Bible's answer. I think of Ephesians, or 1 Thessalonians 4.3. And this is the will of God. People go, man, I've been waiting for that verse. I've been wanting to know, what is God's will for my life? And, and it's a verse. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for his people is a process, starting where we are, a process of sanctification by which we become more and more holy. We're renewed in the whole man after the image of Christ. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And so the great priority of the Christian life is not happiness, but holiness. God did not choose you to be happy in a worldly sense, but to be holy. I I was telling somebody out in the aisle, I like to say, I love myself and I have a wonderful plan for my life. It's called happiness. No trials at all. My plan for my life doesn't have any trials, no sorrows, no opposition. God loves me more than I love myself. He has a different plan for my life. It is not called happiness. It's called holiness. And all those trials and more get added right back in. God wants to make us holy. We want to fit in to the materialistic society around us, finding joy in a self-centered lifestyle. God wants us to be different from the world, finding joy in our union with Christ and our communion with him. We want to be consumers. That's what Americans are. We want everything our own way. God wants us to be disciples of a cross-bearing Christ, having things his way. We want to use our money, our time, our talents for ourselves. God wants us to use them for him, for the gospel, for the work of the church, for the blessing of other people. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, because we have been chosen to holiness, we must and will become holy. According to Paul, we are not chosen with the possibility of holiness, but to the realization of holiness. Being chosen and being holy are inseparable. 
God has chosen you to holiness and he will make you holy. And if the preaching of the gospel does not do so, then God has other methods. He may strike you down with illness. He may ruin your business. But he will make you holy because he has chosen you unto holiness. The doctrine of election does not promote license, easy living. It demands holiness. And if we do not want to pursue holiness, if we are elect, then God will pursue it for us. Hebrews 12, 6 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son he receives. We don't want to pray. God will give us reasons to pray. I admit, one of the reasons why I pray is I, I want to get ahead of the Lord. I mean, let me just be zealous. I don't want to be forced by a loving father. I, I had a fearful love of my earthly father. I have a fearful love of my heavenly father. I, don't, I, I want to pray without having to be given reasons to pray because I was prayerless. You don't want to tithe. Well, God may teach you to live frugally by other means. You don't want to give up that cherished sin. So God will work its painful consequences in your life until you ask for the grace to repent. And let me be clear, not every trial is God's chastisement. It's really clear. There's a lot of reasons why. I will say that all of our trials, there's two things that all of our trials we know involve. One is the strengthening of our faith. Think of 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7, these fiery trials. Uh, it's for the for the, your faith more precious than gold maybe refined. The other thing that all of our trials give us the opportunity to do is to bear testimony to the gospel. And often we'll never have an opportunity like in our trials. Uh, years ago, I was summoned in the middle of the night. Uh, a dear friend of mine, a brother in our church, was landing on the telepad of uh, of uh, the Greenville Hospital. He and his family were driving home from the beach. And it was nighttime, and he fell asleep, and they clipped a, um, a, a semi-truck on one of these roads right around Conway. That, it's a reminder for me not to drive home tonight. Um, and uh, so I'm there when he comes off, and, and he actually was a physical therapist, a renowned one, and his left arm is shattered. There are actually bones in his left arm they couldn't find. And, and obviously it's a traumatic situation, and I had the grace to say to him, my friend, in about five minutes, your children are going to come through that door. And what they see in you will tell them whether your Christianity is real. So I have great compassion. I'm, I'm not as anxious as you are, but I'm really anxious for you. And I'm praying that God has given you right now an opportunity to show the power and reality of your faith in a way that your children will never forget. And he did. All of our trials, not, that, not all of our trials involve chest. My, my general rule is if you're being chastened by God for some sin that you're not giving up, you know what it is. And I would advise you, if you're in the process of being chastened for sin, just repent. Um, but all of our trials involve growing our faith and bearing testimony, but we are to become holy. If you're a Christian who's not interested in becoming more holy, then he disciplines for us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And my friends, holiness is a great thing. Holiness is wonderful. God's commands are for our good, for our blessing, for our joy and our satisfaction. The wise Christian longs to be more holy, to be less worldly, to have his or her sinful passions subdued and to be more like God. I don't know if I, I, I've been traveling a lot. I can't remember if I told the story here last night or not. I'll tell you again. 96-year-old Bobby Hauser, I talked about her last night. Bobby, she's in the nursing home. She's 96. How can I pray for you, Bobby? She goes, oh, Pastor, 
pray that I would repent of my sins. And I said to her, I, she, she had a good sense of humor so I could joke with her. I said, Bobby, I mean, how much, you're 96 year old in a nursing home. How much can you sin? She said, you'd be surprised. <laughs> That's a good prayer. Cause me to be more like the Lord, less under the influence of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Holiness is so good. And here's what I want to say. The doctrine of election is a great help in the matter of personal holiness. Because here's the question. Who do you think you are? Right? Are you kidding yourself that you are going to be holy? And the Christian says, no, I get that 100%. But I was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that I might be holy and blameless before him. I crazy though it seems I am going to shine like the brightness of the stars above I am destined for holiness and that encourages me well let's just get on with it now let's just get on with it now how can I become holy because God has purposed in his son and it says that if I've trusted in Christ I have a new identity yes I am a saint and God is going to bless me with holiness. He has chosen me to this. I will be holy. What an amazing thought. And if I am in Christ, I can be sure of it. And this is my destiny. And that gives me confidence to embrace it. I am emboldened to a more active and godly faith. Have you ever seen members of royalty on television and notice the dignity with which they carry themselves? That's because they're princes and princesses. It's not hard to get a prince with that, to learn a royal bearing. It's not difficult at all to get a princess to walk with grace and charm. Once they realize who they are, they catch on without very, very much training. And so is holiness for God's elect. Once we realize that God has chosen us for holiness, that ours is a high destiny and light and glory, it becomes increasingly natural. And it's in this way that the doctrine of election does not promote license. Oh, it would if it were not accompanied by a, a, a new heart, our newborn nature. But now it promotes holiness. Let me give you another thing we see. Election is the Bible's teaching, not man. It promotes humility, not pride. It promotes holiness, not license. And here it's of such value to us. Election promotes assurance of salvation, but not presumption. It, it, it promotes assurance of salvation rather than presumption. There is a great difference between a rightly grounded biblical assurance of salvation and a dangerous presumption. And the Bible clearly explains it. The Bible says that you are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you think you are saved apart from confessing your sins and trusting personally in the atoning blood of Jesus, trusting in your family or your church membership or your baptism or some experience you had when you were a youth, none of those will save you. Election is in Christ. And so you cannot be saved. You are not saved unless you believe in Jesus and trust his blood for your salvation. But then your faith is validated. The Bible teaches this. Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. And as, the, as, as your life begins bearing fruit, as your life, one of the blessings, it's better to be a covenant child, but one of the benefits of being a pretty rough 30-year-old combat officer and being born again is there was pretty rapid change in my life, and I was there. And I know I was born again, and that's a great help to me. And I, I, I'm not trusting in myself, but I know I have been born again. 
I know I have believed in Jesus. You, can, you know that you have been born again and believe in Jesus too. And it's in this respect that election deals not so much with how to be saved, but rather with the assurance that you are saved. Election says to us that if we can say to God that we trust in his son, the Lord Jesus, that we confess our sins, we see his blood as, as our forgiveness, God tells us in response that our faith is securely founded on the solid rock of his eternal decree. Donald Gray Barnhouse had an illustration that he said there's a great cross standing before the whole world and there's a door in it and it says, all who to come, all you who are weary and I, and I will give you rest. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And you believe in the Lord Jesus, you go through the door, but then you look over, the, over your back once you've come in and you see written on that same door on the inside, chosen in Christ for the foundation of the world. By the way, I have this from Dr. Boyce's mother that she was converted through that illustration, by the way. When he only gave it once, his voice's mother was, was converted through that. It's a great help. It's an in-house doctrine that she, to glorify God, to humble us, to promote holiness, and to give us assurance. If I believe, the question is, why do I believe? The Bible answers it because God chose you irrevocably in eternity past. That is of the greatest benefit in gaining that vital assurance of eternal life. We are saved. We are not saved by believing we are elect. Never once have I said, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Some of you are elect, some of you are not. We don't, that's not how the gospel is preached. We are not saved by believing we are elect. Rather, we believe we are elect because we are saved through faith in Christ. Election conveys assurance not to unbelief, but to the weakness of our saving faith. And in this, it is of the greatest value to the Christians. How many Christians lack the joy that ought to be theirs because they struggle with eternal assurance? And how many stumble on in weakness and they're burdened with doubts that would be erased if they only knew their salvation rests not in themselves, but in God. And really, for how many people, how much of their spiritual energy and passion is spent cycling through that issue if we just turn to the bible you were chosen in christ before the foundation of the world election says it was god who sought us and not we who sought him that god called us to himself because he chose us long ago and this changes everything in my struggle with assurance of salvation and it gives peace to my eternal soul Romans 8.30 says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this means that if God has called me to himself through Jesus Christ, it was part of his predestined plan. If he called me, he justified me by the blood of Christ, and he will bring me to glory forever in heaven. I have a very close Christian friend who was raised in a very intense and emotionally intense Armenian revivalistic church background. And she came to uh, the Reformed doctrines, quite a lot of struggle, but she came to realize the doctrines of grace, the doctrine of election, the sovereignty of God, had a huge impact on her life. And, but she, she said to me at one point, I just feel like all the passion's gone out of my life. I feel like my life's become intellectual now that I'm a Calvinist. And I said to her, I actually don't see that in you. 
I'd say that, I wouldn't say that about you at all. She goes, that's how I feel. Well, her parents' church were having a revival, their annual summer revival. So it's, the whole, you know, it's the whole thing. And they have the whole machinery of the altar call. And she's sitting in the balcony watching the, the manipulation of the altar call taking place. And she gets an insight. She goes, ah. She says to me later, it's wonderful. She says, what I thought was a lack of passion is actually peace. The reason I don't have that passion is it was torment. But I was used to it. I'd spiritualize that torment. It's not intellectualism. I don't need to do, I don't need to, to, to play the game. I don't need to go through the machinery. I am in Christ. God shows me I am his and he is mine. Well, if you've never repented of your sin and come to God through Jesus Christ, let me appeal to you to do so and to do it now. And if you do, if you will confess it's, it's the obvious truth, you are a sinner. You are guilty before a holy God. And the good news is he sent his son to die for those who believe. And if you do believe, you then can know that God called you. You were not seeking him. He has been seeking you. And you are therefore safe forever with the future in glory because of his sovereign will. Whenever I think about assurance, I think of a street we, my wife and I used to live on in Philadelphia when our, our oldest children are little, our, particularly our two oldest children, were little boy, little girl then. And we lived on a super busy street, Henry Avenue in Philadelphia. And the park that they liked to play in was across Henry Avenue. And it was a very narrow sidewalk, and it's 50 miles an hour. So you've got a, a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and we're walking up to a street where, I mean, right there, metal swimming by. And we were holding onto their hands, right? And we would say to them, Matthew, Hannah, hold tight. Hold tight. Don't you let go of our hands. And that was true. We meant that, but the whole time we had an iron grip on their hands. And the reason they were safe, yes, is because they held fast. We need to hold fast to Christ. The Bible tells us, believe in him. Don't waver. Grow in your faith. Invest in, don't mess with your faith. It's important that you hold fast to the Lord, but what's more important is he's holding fast to you. And we were holding them with that grip, and that is why they were safe. So it is with God. Hold fast to him. Press on in the difficulties of life, but he chose you to be his holy people, and he is holding on to you. Jesus said, no one will snatch you from my hand. No one will snatch you from my Father's hand. In all your trials, trust in him, and rest assured in sovereign grace. Well, let me make a final point about election. It's this, that election promotes glory to God alone and not to man. This is the final and really the ultimate benefit. The doctrine of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of election promotes glory to God alone and not to man. Why does the Bible teach this doctrine? Well, I've said it. It helps us to be holy, uh, humble. It promotes holiness. It certainly is vital for assurance of salvation. But the most important reason that the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election is so that we will realize that our salvation is all of the Lord. As Paul said in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory. Amen. 
God purposed our salvation. He planned it. He chose us. Now he has saved us. All our spiritual blessings and an eternity and glory are all because of his wonderful grace. Uh, I mentioned to some of you, I was with James Boyce. I was not at the moment that he died, but in those weeks in which he was dying. And he'd written a number of hymns just in the months before them. And one of them says this. Since grace is the source of the life that is mine, and faith is the gift from on high, I'll boast in my Savior, all merit decline, and glorify God till I die. Well, we were made to glorify God alone, and he saved us, as Ephesians 1, 6 says, just go down two verses, all for the praise of his own glorious grace. And so we must therefore rest our souls solely in him and when we know we are fully secure having been chosen in christ before the foundation of the world it's then that our hearts fully are able to say yes and all the glory goes to him and glorifying to him our hearts will be taught to sing love with everlasting love drawn by grace that love to know spirit sent from christ above Thou dost witness it is so. Oh, this full and precious peace from his presence all divine in a love that cannot cease. I am his and he is mine. Father, we glorify you. As sinners saved by your grace alone, chosen in eternity past, and Father, all we can do is marvel with gratitude that you loved us And therefore you have loved us. And you loved us eternally. And and therefore you chose that in Christ that we would be saved. And you caused your son to come into the world. And he came on a mission. And part of that mission is that he would make an atoning sacrifice so that my personal sins would be forgiven. And the sins of all the believers who are here tonight. Each of us together and all of us individually. And for that reason... You, in your good timing, you caused the gospel to be proclaimed. And you sent your Holy Spirit to open up our hearts. That that love would find its fulfillment in our redemption in your Son. Oh, Father, would you cause us to say, Jesus died for me. Oh, I want to live for him. Would you cause us to sing, the Lord has done it all. I am his. He is mine. May he have all the glory. And let me serve the cause of that glory now and forever. Amen.